0: Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast from the BMJ, sponsored by Medical Protection, where we tackle the everyday challenges of being a GP. Today we're talking about insomnia. When your patient asks for help because they're having trouble sleeping, the consultation can go in a number of directions. Are they depressed? Worried about money? Have nocturia? Sleep apnea? Or maybe they actually have chronic insomnia? And are you happy to prescribe a few sleeping tablets? And what if your patient only mentions the problem when they're on their way out of the consulting room, or these days, as you're about to hang up the phone? We seek some answers from sleep expert Lauren Hale and addiction specialist Mike Keller. I'm Tom Nolan, GP in London and clinical editor for the BMJ. And as usual, I'm joined by Navjoy. Hi, Navjoy.
1: Hi, I'm Navjoy Larder. I'm the head of education at the BMJ and a GP in London.
0: And sleeping well at the moment?
1: Sleeping pretty good, actually. I feel quite bad because every a lot of people, a lot of my friends, a lot of patients have been saying, you know, in the middle of the pandemic, how bad they've been sleeping. But... Sleeping pretty well. That's I have to say. <laughs> <Okay. Yeah>.
2: Sorry. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> sleep uh,
0: privilege. <laughs> sleep privilege. That's a neat one, yeah. Uh, Jenny, hi. How, how are you?
2: Hi, I'm Jenny Rasanathan. I'm a family medicine doctor and clinical editor for the BMJ.
0: And again, I should ask you, how's your It's, day, it's morning time where you are now, isn't it? Because we're, we're recording this at night. But um, yeah, how did you sleep last night?
2: Oh, rubbish. It was horrible, actually. You know, those <laughs> nights where you just kind of lay there feeling tired and you just can't sleep and you're kind of aware that you're not sleeping and you're growing increasingly anxious and frustrated about the fact that you're not mm-hmm. sleeping because of all the things you have to do the next day. And um, in my case, I have you know two young kids who invariably know that the nights I've gone to bed the latest and really, really need them to sleep in, those are the mornings they come running in at 6.17 in the morning and it's like, oh. Yeah. Good morning.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or um, you know, if they, if they if they always wake up at a certain hour in the middle of the night, you're sort of counting down the minutes till that that hour, <laughs>
3: yeah.
0: and calculating the number of hours sleep.
3: Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> so I thought I'd, I'd start by asking you about your own sleep, um, probably because I couldn't think of a better way of introducing the episode. But um, it's quite a good window in, into the person's life, isn't it? And it comes up a lot in consultations. What what do you think?
2: It definitely comes up a lot in consultations. I'm really glad that we're talking about this today. This is one of those areas that always kind of makes my heart race when a patient says, oh, I'm not sleeping well, because I always feel really helpless about what to offer and Mm -hmm. know that or think that to do my job would be you know, really having an in-depth conversation about all the different possible areas of psychosocial stress, their bedtime routine, sleep hygiene, getting into all of those things. And um, it often feels, yeah, like there just isn't a lot that I have to offer.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I get that feeling as well, definitely. (laughs) Um, And it's one of those things, I suppose, if if, if the person does present with that as as their main complaint, there's so many different reasons, aren't there, for why, why we don't sleep, you know, from the very common mundane, like really excited about recording deep breath in the next thing.
2: <laughs> in like your it, case, yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> to, yeah, to some sort of really serious, um, either, you know, underlying causes, or just in itself, it can be a really serious problem, can't it? Um, do you have the yeah. same thing now, Joy?
1: Yeah, and I think, yeah, no, exactly that, that, you know, there's a huge array of things it could be, but so often it is just... A condition of modern life, it seems, you know, and particularly recently, there does seem to be a lot of extra focus on sleep and sleep as a kind of um, important component of kind of well-being and, you know, the impact that screens have. So it seems to be quite a, a hot topic on people's minds.
0: Yeah. Do you think it's been medicalised along with so many other things as well? There's a, there's a big industry around sleep as well, isn't there? Um, well, actually, I was just
1: thinking... Yeah, well, I was just thinking as you were sort of listing out some of the causes of, um, you know, the reasons why you might have a disrupted night's sleep um, about how actually maybe I'm too quick to think of it as being a kind of, you know, a screen or a social mm. thing. And actually, you know, how often do I ask about nocturia, you know, all of those sorts of things. Mm. So I think there definitely is a chance that, you know, that there's aspects of it that are very medicalized, but yeah. maybe there's also aspects of it where we're forgetting the kind of... Um, there are, there can be things that underlie it too yeah I think every
0: um sort of lecture I've heard about sleep has, has included a slide about you know some people they yeah you know, Margaret Thatcher only needed four hours sleep Bill Clinton <laughs> but,
1: yeah Oprah Clinton. Winfrey all these like high achieving people who didn't yeah. need to sleep but, do you guys that believe
0: actually, them I, 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 well that's <laughs> the first question isn't it like were they just lying to in- increase their <laughs> their persona but
1: well, I think, I know, I think that is one of the things that is quite, you know, you only really ever have an insight into how you sleep and how maybe a few mm. people around you might sleep. And so um, it's one of those areas where I think, you know, there is, a, you have to kind of grasp at these examples that you hear and like actually is is seven hours, you know, seven hours would be great for me, but is that enough for you? And, you know, you have to kind of... Um, mm yeah uh, uh, well with how would that your patient be on a margaret thatcher amount of sleep Mm. like maybe not enough but i
2: think that's a new
1: parent amount of sleep oh
2: (laughs) well i mean i i just think it's it's really interesting to try to understand you know the way that we're feeling right now and and how we can explain that by sleep or not right like i grew up in a family where you know getting a bad night's sleep was a really legitimate reason for being grumpy the next day. Um, My partner comes from a family where that's not true. And and you need to kind of get on with it and not be grumpy, even if you slept horribly. Um, So needless to say, when we had young kids, there were some interesting conversations about whether we were allowed to be grumpy or not. Um, but but it's but it's really interesting. Like how much of the way, if if someone's not feeling well, or if you know, let's say someone's ha- struggling with mood, um, you know, if even if their sleep is interrupted, to what extent can we say, oh well, fix your sleep in order to feel better? Versus there's something else going on that hmm. you know needs attention. I think um, it, I'm hmm. interested in learning more about really what impact sleep has on us going forward.
0: Yeah, I think one of the um, the things in, in my training that that was definitely the main prevailing view, perhaps, was you know, don't don't fix the short term thing. So don't, don't prescribe a prescri- don't prescribe benzodiazepines or zopiclone um, in somebody where um, you know where there's an ongoing problem which isn't the sleep. Um, but patients again and again come to see me and say, I know you can't sort of fix all that, but if you can just give me a good night's sleep for a couple of nights, I think I might be able to cope a bit better with um, with these problems. Um, so I, do, I struggle with that a little bit. And, you know, so I say we, we're going to come on the, our second interview, we should probably get some interviews. <laughs> uh, our second interview is, is with um, uh, uh, an expert, in, well, a consultant in addiction. So I, I ask him about uh, benzodiazepine prescribing and deprescribing. Um, so we'll come on to that a bit more later. But Jenny, um, you talked to someone, a sleep expert, more about, I guess, those reasons and exploring those reasons behind poor sleep. And tell us more. I had
2: a great conversation with Lauren Hale, who we'll hear a bit more from in a little bit. We started by talking about screen time and the what she says is the indisputable interruption that screens um, have on sleep um, for a number of reasons. We all know that we can't just use a screen for two minutes. Um, It ends up being much longer, pushing our bedtime back, and that the content is stimulating, um, actually interfering with our ability to fall asleep and have good sleep. In addition to the beeps and bleeps and other things that that our devices next to our beds uh, give us throughout the night. So we went on to talk a little bit more about what we can do to get better sleep. Let's take a listen.
3: Hi, my name is Lauren Hale. I am a professor Uh, in the program in public health at Stony Brook University in the Department of Family Population and Preventive Medicine. I am also involved in the National Sleep Foundation. I've been on the board there and I'm currently the vice chair. This is the American National Sleep Foundation. And I'm on a few other boards of relevance to this uh, conversation. I'm on the board of the scientific advisory board of an organization called Children and screens. So I'm
2: speaking to you in the morning uh, during my time, and I had a horrible night's sleep last night. And, you know, whether it was because of too much stimulation um, preparing for this chat with you, or whether that was because, you know, I couldn't put my phone down before I kind of finished my, my, um, dishes in the evening, and then had to go do something on my computer. I mean, I think all of these things play a role. And as you say, um, it is a key pillar of our health and well-being. And I know I'm going to feel terrible all day today. So I'm this, all of which is to say that this interview is timely. And I wonder what kind of advice you would give to people in terms of fixing their sleep. And I have a sub question here, which is, is, in the past, when I have read about this from a medical learning perspective, um, it seemed that the preponderance of evidence was about sleep hygiene. And so I wonder if that is still true and if there are new, if there's anything new that the evidence would support with respect to fixing sleep and making sure we can give ourselves that gift.
3: Right. Absolutely. So for those of you who aren't familiar with that Term, which is a term of art, uh, sleep hygiene. <laughs> uh, uh, I still support and endorse sleep hygiene. I think sleep hygiene is, you know, uh, the best behavioral practices for uh, optimal sleep health. What they are, for those of you the uninitiated, is regularity. Make sure that even on week weekends that. Uh, Your weekday and weekend bedtimes and wake times are approximately similar. This is for kids and for adults. Mm -hmm. Make sure that your bedroom is cool, safe, um, comfortable. Your evening should be relaxing. You should minimize exposure to substances, especially like caffeine and alcohol, cigarettes. Uh, And if you have trouble falling asleep at night, be careful about those napping. Those nap Those nappings. Nap times. <laughs> you don't, don't want to be napping at four o'clock in the afternoon and then trying to go to bed at ten. It's just not mm-hmm. going to work. So, mm-hmm. those are sort of best practices for uh, sleep hygiene. I may have left uh, one or two off, but I, I totally support those. And of course, I already said it, but I'll, it's worth repeating again get rid of those screens, limit your screen exposure, especially in the hour or two before bedtime. Mm -hmm. Um, Your question is also thoughtful because you're acknowledging that some of these tips may be changing a little bit over time. And I would say we in the sleep field also recognize that some of them or doing all of them may be insufficient. It might not be enough, for example, if you have sleep apnea, you need to see a doctor and get treated for that. Uh, if you have insomnia, you probably need CBTI or some other type of treatment for your insomnia symptoms. Hmm. And so in that way, sleep hygiene is not a cure-all. It's for everybody to work towards prioritizing healthy sleep. Um, is there something new? Uh, I, I wouldn't say there actually is. It's it's a lot of common sense. Mm-hmm. I I skipped out on the importance of getting uh, early morning light, um, mm-hmm. getting light outdoors uh, during the day, but not in the evenings. Um, exercise is a little bit fuzzier. Uh, generally, it's a key pillar of health to get daily exercise. And we, we tend to think that earlier in the day is late, is better for sleep than later in the day. I think there's mixed results on that, uh, mm-hmm. but I would definitely say all else equal, get exercise, then don't get exercise. So if yeah. the only time you can get some exercise is after dinner, that's probably better than not. But mm-hmm. you know, if your experience varies, if you find that on nights that you exercise, you just can't sleep, then shift it up a bit. I've, I've, I work a lot with adolescent sleep patterns and mm-hmm. I've spoken to teens who are like, after I get home from practice, I, I fall asleep within two minutes. You know, that, so that, that goes against the theory that nighttime exercise is bad for sleep. Yeah. Uh, but my answer to that, to the teenagers, this one teen in particular, was that's because all teens are sleep deprived. <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> you're, yeah. you're getting up too early because your high school starts too early. Your days are packed to the rim and then you fully exerted yourself and you finally get the chance to lie down at the end right. of the day. Um, but that's a different story. Um, <laughs> so, but so the one other thing that it, it doesn't quite fall into the category of sleep hygiene Uh, But it does fall into this bigger picture of what can we do to help Mm -hmm. improve our sleep. And so the first obvious thing is like reduce our anxiety, cope with our stress. But stepping back from that is thinking about what I started studying 15 years ago, something that I call the social determinants of sleep, and looking at patterns of sleep by population subgroups and educational status and racial minority status. And what you see is that socially disadvantaged populations tend to have uh, shorter sleep durations, also higher, um, longer sleep durations, and, and some other higher uh, risks of uh sleep disorders so what can we make of that you know one i care about that cuz that's a disparity and it's hopefully a dis- an addressable disparity mm-hmm. but i'd say the bigger question is does this say something about the importance of not just status but have social status but having life choices and the ability to have control mm. over where you sleep who's in your house who is paying the bills those those types of kind mm-hmm. of life autonomy choices and um it appears i, I it's hard to measure or operationalize this concept mm-hmm. of autonomy mm-hmm. but it appears that this matters for sleep health so if you know if there are ways that you can better your life circumstances which you would want to do anyway um you should consider that it also may help with your sleep health. And obviously that's much harder than just cutting out caffeine. But I, I believe that's underlying a lot of the disparities that we observe in the population so, in sleep.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm really glad that you, um, number one, touched on exercise because that was a question that I had, and number two, um, I really like the way that you that you put this—the social determinants of sleep. You know, we think about social determinants of health for every other area of health.
3: One of the phrases that I, I always come back to, uh, is a reference by Ron Dahl, who's a developmental psychologist, who describes sleep is an opponent process to vigilance if you are on high Mm -hmm. alert, your body can't sleep. And so it's a privilege to be able to say, okay, I'm hopping in my bed and going to sleep right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, that type of privilege is not evenly distributed across the population. And, And I think that's part of what's going on when we see Big gaps, you know, over an hour less sleep per night for black men compared to white women. Uh, that's a really big difference, um, and so and that's overnight. So over the course of a week, over seven hours uh, uh, less sleep for black men. And mm-hmm. then in my sample of teens across the U.S., uh, we found that black uh, teenagers sleep between 20 and 30 minutes less per night than the white teenagers mm-hmm. in our sample of similar socioeconomic. Status, so it's not a socioeconomic status thing it appears to be uh at least in part due to the experiences of uh being black in america and you know it's hard to know what to make of this Mm -hmm. but then when you think about the benefits of sleep for teenagers for learning for performance for health it's it's very troubling and uh that's part of what drives my interest in doing policy work, uh, such as you know focusing on uh, later school start times mm-hmm. so that every kid can get more sleep uh, each night so that they come to school well-rested and prepared for the day.
2: And, and I wonder if you could say more, you've mentioned this a couple times now, the impact of sleep or sleep deprivation on our immune system. Um, what, where, where are we in terms of the research on this relationship and um, kind of what do we know now about that, that impact?
3: Right, I mean, in the easiest to understand terms we like to think about, sleep is an immune booster. There have been mm. several experimental studies, uh, one showing that uh, vaccines work better if you've had enough sleep. Hmm. So (laughs) your body will respond better to exposure to a vaccine if you come into that um, vaccine Mm well-rested and then also to get enough sleep the next night. Uh, And then similarly, uh, my colleague Eric Prother did a study where he exposed people to uh, the rhinovirus not the coronavirus uh-huh. <laughs> years ago, and those people who were not getting enough sleep, uh, and that definition was less than six hours a night, mm-hmm. were more than four times more likely to develop symptoms wow. uh, wh- than the people who were sufficient sleepers. So you know, I can't say this holds true with COVID nineteen, but seems like an relatively easy thing to try to do. Get, get enough sleep just in case you get exposed, you might have fewer <laughs> symptoms, like, come on, let's do it. And you'll feel better. Um, and there are benefits for uh, weight loss and you know psychological well-being. There are so many reasons that I feel like you don't need to convince it. But just if, if I uh, were a clinician talking to patients, I would say, getting enough sleep, boost your immune response, uh, make it a priority.
4: It's essential for
1: your health. What Lauren was saying about um, social determinants of sleep, I mean, any GP listening to this will be, you know, that won't be a surprise, I think. And that's one of the reasons why um, sleep difficulties can be so hard to manage because they seem Mm -hmm. so linked sometimes to people's circumstance and areas where you know we as gps can do very little and um so yeah that that makes complete sense to frame it in that way i think
0: but also um i I don't think i've heard that this for for a long while about autonomy being Mm. very much linked with those social determinants of sleep and, and and certainly more broadly as well um i was thinking about this this week about uh your coronavirus covid and autonomy and and is one of the knock-on effects of this year and the kind of loss of autonomy that we've had, um, you know, from from the top down, I suppose, being um, going to manifest in different ways, and I suppose sleep, and it, it kind of makes sense. Uh, and, and I think we know in, in our consultations all the time and again, like every single day, possibly every consultation, if you can increase a person's or help somebody to feel that they've got more choice and autonomy, then they feel a lot better about whatever it Mm. is. So I thought that was a good point.
2: I I totally agree. And of course the challenge is that these are not easy solutions that Mm. we can write on a prescription pad and hand over, right? I mean, all of any social determinants, but especially when we're thinking about the ability to give somebody autonomy or to empower them with choice I mean, these are intractable social problems that, you know, require huge efforts to try to Mm. um, Mm. fix on a population level. I I think this really Mm. speaks to the difficulty of trying to help somebody improve their sleep when, you know, for example, they have three part-time jobs that require them to work odd hours or that interfere with their sleep in other ways. Just as a GP, it's... Knowing and understanding that these are huge problems for people and their and really affect their ability to get sleep, it you know it it's, it makes me feel like you know helpless in some ways. Like there's nothing I can really do for that person.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking back to our episode on on racism, and you know, part, a lot of that was trying to think about what we can do or how we can change the structures we work within. Um, I, I think just just occurred to me, it's useful to think of our structures in terms of how much autonomy or how, how little autonomy are our patients um, being given. So yeah, useful sort of insight for, for me. Um, I wanted to, to come back to, to more mundanely perhaps to sleep hygiene uh, uh, because it always seems to fall flat. For me again, just, just being coming clean that. Uh, uh, saying to somebody, you know, have you tried sleep hygiene? Almost inevitably they say, of course I have, or, you know, I do all the, the usual things, try and restrict my, my phone use. And um, the way she described it did make make me see why perhaps that this is something that we should just, just it's just something that we should all be kind of conscious of, wh- whether you really have a sleep problem or not. And I think if you, if, you, if you're in a position perhaps where you're in front of your GP asking for help with your sleep, then it's already kind of perhaps gone beyond that. Is, is that is that fair i know it's not, not what the nice guidelines say but um
1: I don't know. I yeah, that's right. <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, yes, on, on one level, I agree with you that, yeah, of course, like, you know, most people, by the time it gets to that stage, they'll have, you know, tried to look into the things they can do at home. But I, I feel I hear the answer, you know, if I go into what about this and what about this and no coffee, you know, I feel like I hear too many like blanket, like, yes, 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 I've done all of that <laughs> to kind of, um, I don't know, I, I've, yeah, I don't know. And I think one thing I was just reflecting on is like I was thinking about my week of sleep and how hard it is to remember like one night to the next how you've slept and like oh two nights ago did I have a cup of tea before I went to bed I can't remember Um, and so one thing I've started doing is asking people to keep sleep diaries now which I think I read in an RCGP thing somewhere Um, and then going through that with um, people just to like try and try and get to the bottom of sleep hygiene a bit more, or work out areas where there might be, I don't know, a room to do things differently. That's
0: true.
2: Please. Just to say that I I totally agree that it it falls flat. Like the number of times that you know you you really make an effort to go through all the different elements of sleep hygiene and trying to get talk even where people haven't already made these interventions at home, it it again just feels so like, like
1: a pitiful offering. <laughs> <laughs> why do you think that is? Do you think there is this sense that this is too minor to make a big difference or that... Because I, 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 I don't understand why, why it should fall flat so much. I mean, it does, mm-hmm. I agree, but I don't kind of get it.
0: <laughs> um, what was the um, episode where we... There was a word we could rebrand things, because hygiene is such a bad word, Yes, isn't
1: it? Like, yeah. Are you
0: hygiene? Of course I've got good sleep hygiene. <laughs> are you saying? I've got dirty sleep habit. I said,
1: do you think it's got a bad rep because it's bad branding?
2: <laughs> I think maybe
0: we need, we need to rebrand it.
1: Okay. But I,
2: I think part of the problem is when we offer sleep hygiene, or whatever you want to call it, um how many times don't you have a patient who says but how about a prescription for a sleeping pill to help me in the short term mm.
0: yeah yeah exactly and well we'll hear in a second from our second interview uh, that um that happens a lot and he's got some yeah some stats there about how many people in the uk at least are, are being prescribed sleeping tablets and you know it's a lot, <laughs> unsurprisingly. Um, yeah, I, I'm well. And just thinking, sorry, cut that bit out. I'm <laughs> uh, thinking about. It, I mean, do you prescribe sleeping tablets? Both each of you um, for for this. I mean, I do. Uh, I think I did last week. I kept, you know, I don't do it very often. But um, um, we we we've, we've, we discussed this in our practice, and there's a real difference of opinion from some GPs who who won't ever um, to others who are much more kind of relaxed about it in certain circumstances.
1: I I do it depends on the patient I think Um, yeah I've definitely had uh, um, scenarios and definitely my time in psychiatry training as well before I became a GP I think there was this sense that sometimes knowing that you have a prescription for a sleeping tablet can be helpful if you have anxiety it can help you know without even using the tablet just knowing that it's there if you need it um and, you know, just what we're talking about, this idea that there are some things that, you know, you, you know that uh, a patient can't control or change, you know, uh, elements of hmm. that. And you, yeah, sometimes I think, well, maybe this is worth trying because it would be really hard to alter the fact that you, you know, have these stresses in your life that that we can't do anything about. So I will, yeah, hmm. put my hands up and say I do. Yeah.
2: I I do too. Um, I I mainly because I'm really sympathetic to how awful it feels when you can't sleep. Um, It is challenging, though, um, and it's always a little frustrating to have people who maybe you don't regularly see who are Mm -hmm. being prescribed sleeping pills from another person, and then they come to you for a refill. I always have this um, kind of pause there, like, why are you on these? Mm. Do you really need them? Are they potentially causing you harm? Are you doing the other things that could help you sleep without these things? Um, mm. I think they're really, really hard to take off once, or to deprescribe once people are using them. But I agree, Navjoy, You know there is a lot of um, benefit just knowing you have an option, even if you never, even if a, if a person never takes takes one.
0: Hmm. so good time to, to come to our second interview I think um, so we talked about both of these things so firstly about prescribing uh, sleeping tablets and in particular I was interested in you know how addictive are they really because um, it's something we obviously tell patients um, you know very kind of dramatically often you know these are so addictive you, you know if you take them for more than the next number of days um, you're not going to ever be able to sleep without them <laughs> So without that intonation, perhaps, but um, but also once a, the patient is taking them and has been put regularly, as uh, there are many people who, who do, um, then what you know? I've, I've heard of, you know, some some doctors you know, insisting that the patients stop them and sort of tell you this is how you're going to do it, um, whereas others seem to just be prescribed them for long term with, with very little kind of oversight. So. Um, let's let's see what Mike Kelleher who's uh, my local addiction specialist um, has to say about these things and that's coming up after this from our sponsor
4: when you're a GP you're not just 9 to 5 being a GP is part of who you are whatever the time of day so when it comes to your indemnity you need someone you can turn to at any time medical protection is always here for you with expert medico-legal advice, including 24-7 in an emergency. We don't just cover patient claims. We're also here to provide support and legal representation when it comes to GMC inquiries, coroner inquests, criminal investigations, and more. Online, we offer risk prevention courses and webinars to keep you up to date with current news, risks, and legislation. We also go the extra mile when it comes to your well-being. With a free counselling service and e-care app, we're helping members take positive steps to better mental and physical health. It's the protection your career deserves, all in one place. And if you're about to qualify or have recently qualified, we can help you take the next step in your career with savings on membership for newly qualified GPs. To find out more, Visit medicalprotection.org.
5: My name is Michael Kelleher, and I'm a consultant addiction psychiatrist, a specialist. And my main job is I'm clinical lead for addictions for Lambeth within the Lambeth Addiction Consortium, but I'm also national clinical advisor to Public Health England, Alcohol, Drugs, Tobacco and Justice
0: Division. Great. Well, thank you for joining me today. Um, I want to talk to you about benzodiazepines and I suppose zopiclone and other um, um, drugs used for uh, sleep. But of course, these are very addictive medications. And as GPs, you know, we're very careful, I think, generally about how we prescribe them. Um But I was looking into it a little bit uh, to to try and answer the question, you know, how addictive are these drugs? Are they as addictive as we think they are or more addictive? When might you become addictive if you continue to take, say, diazepam at night for sleep? Yeah. Can you answer that?
5: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Tough opening question, Tom. How (laughs) addictive are they? I mean, addiction can be a bit movable, what it is. And people like to have a hierarchy of addiction. Is it as addictive as heroin? Or is it as addictive as crack cocaine or alcohol? But lots of different things are addictive, Tom. You need the first thing you need to understand. And they don't all behave the same way. So someone who's addicted to opioids might present to someone very different who is dependent, say, on caffeine or nicotine. But yet nobody's doubting that all these three people are dependent on them. So in answer to your questions, um, how addictive are benzodiazepines? Um to some people they can be very addictive so we know that um, so in Public Health England we brought out um, a prescription medicine review opioids obviously the whole class um gabapentinoids which we might touch on briefly today as well um, and pre um, and gabapentin benzodiazepines and Z drugs which we are talking about and actually antidepressants so they brought a review out into that and they found that about um I think some of the region of 2.4 million people in the year we looked at were prescribed a benzodiazepine in the course of that year. Um, And most of them, 82% had it for less than three months. So most doctors were prescribing within the guidelines. But a certain percentage of them um, were prescribed for much longer. And indeed, we found that about, in England as a whole, about 240,000 people were prescribed either a benzodiazepine or a Z drug which has Zopiclone and Zolpidem for the entire time of the review, which was three years.
0: And so I guess that gets to a thing we talk about um, in our team, in, in my practice a bit, which is what, what is appropriate benzodiazepine prescribing for insomnia? You know, is, is it ever appropriate? Is it um, always appropriate? Um, you know, and, and how do you kind of work your way through that decision?
5: Uh. I mean, the first thing I got to put a little bit of a caveat on that, Tom, is I'm an addiction psychiatrist, so I would invariably never prescribe it for insomnia. But I do see a slightly skewed population, you know, um, including actually patients from your practice sometimes who would have ended up, on, on, not through any fault of the GPs, but might have ended up in long-term benzodiazepine prescriptions. Um, and it's a bit, but the guidance, you know, Tom, I mean, just to give you a little bit of background context for this, you know, um, I'm not sure that you can have a drug that alters your mental state, your psychological state, which has the, that does not have the potential to be potentially dependence forming addictive. You go all the way back to after World War II, there was a drug called meprobamate, in all likelihood acts on the GABA system. And that clearly was found to be dependence forming. So then they moved on to another GABAergic agent, barbiturates. And again, that was found to be dependence forming and also quite lethal in overdose. So then along came the benzodiazepines, and then they were found to be dependence forming. And now, more laterally, we've moved on to the next class of GABAergic agents, which is the GABApentinoids, pregabalin and GABApentin, which had just recently been controlled under the Misuse of Drugs Act. What I think is remarkable about the Prescription Medicine Review, if you think about those 240,000 people, is that a recommendation on limiting the length of time for prescribing of benzodiazepines was made in 1988 by the Committee for the Safety of Medicines, which is like, what, 32 years ago? And yet still to this day, and that was a limitation saying that um, patients should only be on these drugs for at most four weeks. They should be prescribed sparingly in anxiety for short periods of time. And I think when it came to insomnia, only in brief bursts. But unfortunately, up until about 2014, 2015, what we were seeing was an increase in Z drugs to make up for it. But since about 2014, I think the prescribing of Z drugs has reduced somewhat. So is it ever appropriate that you might prescribe one of them? There are situations where it may be appropriate, very briefly. However, usually we would direct you towards the NICE guideline, which would say if it's an anxiety state, there's others more effective treatments. But you could, I could see a situation in a crisis um, that you might. And similarly, I can see where for two or three days it might be appropriate. But again, you're not really treating the underlying problem. And in many ways, as a doctor, all you may be doing for yourself is kicking the can down the road in that awful political phrase, because they're going to come back a few days later, and they may say, well, this was wonderful. You know, I want you to give it to me for another three or four days because I just can't cope, you know, or whatever. And
0: you end up in this cycle. So I guess that- comes on to the the next thing i want to ask you about which is um you have a patient who you know is take or has been taking um say diazepam whatever 10 10 milligrams for you know as long back as you can look on their records and um you do that review and you're discussing um uh the well i guess is it the option or i guess that's the first question what is what is the right kind of tack to take is it you know i want you to you're going to come off this drug or I want you to think about it. Tell me when you're ready. How far do we need to push that? And then how do you help them get off it once they've decided or you've decided between you?
5: So I think, you know, I think it's having an open, honest, um, but equal discussion with the client, with the patient. You know, that you um, you need to frame it that you're not telling them what to do. You want to discuss it with them. Um, and from that discussion, your recommendation would be would be that, you know, you could really benefit from coming down. But what would be very clear, people should try to steer away from is telling people what to do. Or arbitrarily just stopping someone's prescription without reviewing that can actually be dangerous in a different way. You know, you may put them into acute withdrawals, you may get them to seek it from somewhere else illicitly. And I, you know, you shouldn't be doing that, you should be doing something in collaboration with the, the patient. And then the reality is, if they're on it for 10 years, Tom, you know, and um, waiting another few months or another year, you know, it's not, you know, it's a long game, this is you, that you're, that you're with the patient, you know, so it should be, I guess what I'm trying to say, it should be collaborative. And, and generally, it should be done in agreement with the patient. And if they refuse, and say they won't come off, and you have They have capacity to make that decision which almost all our patients do you know capacity is presumed i often think the safest course of action can be to leave them on it unless you think something really bad is going to happen or something the unlikely circumstance that they may be diverting then it's different i think the safest thing may be to leave them on it and and review it again in a month or two's time yeah
0: it's always hard because you feel you feel like you haven't succeeded but i guess um you have, even if they choose to, to make that decision, uh, I think we, as a GP, you kind of feel, oh, well, it didn't, didn't, didn't come off, didn't didn't help the patient. It,
5: you, it's kind of empowering though. You're giving the service, the patient a choice, you know, in their thing. And you're warning them of the risks of what they're doing. And you're not going to ignore the conversation. You're going to have it again. I mean, the other thing worth discussing at this point though, Tom, is like, what was the underlying reason they were prescribed it in the first day? And unfortunately, you may have to dig back into the mists of time, back to those old paper notes that came in brown envelopes, you know, because some of these people will be on it for literally 20, 30 years. You may not be able, but is there an underlying condition that was never treated, you know?
0: So so let's say uh, you have been successful there and all the patients come back to you, thought about it and they would like to stop. Uh you know, I understand there isn't a great sort of evidence base for this, but what's, what is there and what's your experience about how how to do that most effectively or safely?
5: There is actually, I, I, um, you write about the evidence base. And this is some things, you know, there's lots of evidence about how you start people on medication, you know, mm. because obviously people have an interest in getting the medications out there and And that's not, you know, that's just not, not just the pharmaceutical industry. There's obviously kind of, you know, there's other academics and people involved who are making their careers or whatever, you know, so there's people, there's often not a great wealth of evidence about stopping people on medication. That said, there is a wonderful manual on the internet um, called the Ashton Manual, which was done by Heather Ashton, who was the professor um, of psychopharmacology in Newcastle. And she ran a clinic in the eighties, reducing people from benzodiazepines to stopping. And, you know, this would be, this would be the, the manual that is referenced in NICE actually, you know, and there's mm-hmm. an excellent NICE knowledge summary as well about stopping people on benzodiazepines that people can access. Um, and <clears throat> usually, again, the first thing is doing in collaboration. Um, so, mm, and it's up to the service user the patient how fast how slow they go usually the point is they've started reducing now some people like to go fast you know and if that's okay you know if that's what they want to do that should be okay but what you need to do is make yourself available in case they've reduced too quickly and they've found they've developed withdrawal symptoms such you know their typical withdrawal nausea sweating anxiety headache a, a unstable gait you know but obviously there's a small number of reported seizures and the like so kind of um, that they can slow down their rate of reduction they want so some people i have some patients who've chosen to reduce over the course of a month you know and that's what their choice and i've supported them in that mm. other patients i've been detoxing them for a year and a half you know and but the point is they're moving in the right direction and we've done it slowly mm. together and they have felt an element of control but the thing you've got to understand that, and there's some lovely research about this now, <clears throat> is that usually at the start of reductions for all these drugs, and we see the same thing for opioids, is at the bigger doses, it's easier to make reductions. Mm. And when you come down to the smaller doses, mm. this is where they people really begin to struggle and you may need to slow down your rate of reduction. And there's very clear biological reason for that, is that essentially, receptor occupancy in the brain of the GABA receptor as you get down to the smaller doses you can suddenly see massive change in receptor occupancy which might not have occurred until you got down to 10 milligrams of diazepam so they'd say it's all fine to come down and then you need to slow down you may need to slow down in collaboration with the patient
0: So um, some pharmacology in action there at the end it was quite nice to end quite a useful tip that because I feel I feel like I've seen that before and um it, it, obviously it's tempting to put that down to some sort of um things not going so well but if that's what you know to expect so he was talking a lot there about you know being a conversation with the patient isn't it and um you know explore and work collaboratively which you know is kind of the theme of this podcast isn't, isn't it of the episodes Um, just trying to think to to the last patient where I prescribed, um, a tablet for, for this, in this situation. And, um, when it goes well, that's how it, how it goes. But sometimes it's, you know, you think you're at the end of the consultation and you get sort of almost jumped with, Oh, by the way, uh, I'm really struggling to sleep or can't you give me something for my sleep? And, um, it's hard to keep that kind of best practice, um, style of consulting when you're busy right? It's it's hard, isn't it?
2: Yeah. I mean, I, there was so much um, in that interview to pick up on so many, so many kind of rich insights there, but yeah, my, my biggest takeaway as well was the idea of having a collaborative um, conversation with somebody about, you know, what, you know, when they're using the benzodiazepines and, and whether they want to, stay on it or whether um, it makes sense to start going down. And it touches on the earlier point um, you made, Navjoy, about giving people a choice and helping them feel empowered. And if they can have even a little bit of agency in deciding, you know, whether they want to stay on or whether it also makes sense for them to try to cut down, I think that was really great. And it it helps maybe reimagine the dynamic between uh, GPs and the patient because I feel like so often we feel we have the power because we have the prescription pad. Um, but this really, at least the sense I got from Mike, really kind of recentered that power on the patient deciding and having some choice over um, whether or not to continue. Um, and I appreciated the point about sometimes maybe the safest option is to have the patient continue on the medicine they're taking. It did make me wonder when we have these conversations about stepping down on benzos or, or coming off them, um, you know, what we need to communicate to patients about the risks, you know, why are we engaging in these conversations in the first place? Is it because there are some longer term concerns that we have? Is it because, you know, we, there are other problems that they're facing that benzos might be contributing to. Um, it just made me really want to think carefully about when we have these conversations and approach these in a discussion, kind of collaborative mindset, what is the information that we're communicating to inform the patient's choice?
0: Yeah, I totally agree. And and it's very hard even to find that information sometimes, but well, let alone remember it. <laughs> you know, and And then you've got the whole, Skill set around communicating risk with patients, and 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 you got to be ready for the answer to be actually no, I, thanks for letting me know all that, but I'll I'll keep on the drugs, thanks, and 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 that being okay. Totally,
2: it reminds me of the yeah. episode on the flu vaccine, where again it's a re imagining of our goal as a provider in that interaction, which is not about getting them to take the vaccine or getting them to go off the medication in this instance, but about saying, here is the information and offering, you know, potentially a recommendation based on a future potential health problem, but really relinquishing that choice and
1: control. I think you can also look at it as well from the perspective of... Um the kind of, a bit like flu vaccine actually, the kind of public health aspect of it because one of the, um, just while we've been talking, I've been looking up the long-term harms of benzodiazepines and, um, you know, one of them that is discussed quite often is uh, the risk of um, car crashes and motor vehicle accidents and being kind of impaired, Mm. driving under the influence, as well as like the other one that comes up a lot is um, falls and fractures and um, uh, sort of long-term risks of... uh, cognitive decline as well um Hmm. but yeah where you have a sort of an impact beyond the individual I think that um that also I think Hmm. I, I guess that becomes part of the conversation that you have with a person as well that's part of that collaborative decision making
2: I think that's really interesting I mean to think about the kind of public health reasons why we would care about someone being on this medicine or not as opposed to some of the individual reasons you know it's in some ways, talking to somebody about um, smoking cessation or um, stopping alcohol, in some ways, is easier because we can really say this is the data we have on the personal health outcomes that you might have as a result of this behavior. But it's um, it, with the exception of falls um, and potentially con- contributing to mood disorders, it's much harder to draw a linear path from you keep using benzos and you know slap on the wrist this will happen not that that's our goal to slap people on the wrist but you know what I mean like it's much harder to draw the line from yeah, yeah. from the medication to the outcome
1: mm-hmm. yeah
0: yeah exactly
1: um, well I think we, I think think know, we end what? up where we often end up at the end of episodes which is that these things are hard and yeah. usually we don't have enough time <laughs> in primary care to do them well and and often the root cause are things that, you know, we can't we don't we can't really sort of change very much. Yeah. So yeah.
0: So do you think it's time to, to call it a day or something? Yeah, I episode? think that
1: once we've reached that conclusion in an episode I think yeah, yeah we can say farewell. <laughs>
2: Time for you guys to get off your screen and go to bed. I've got to read Instagram <laughs> yes. for
1: two hours now. Before
2: while, while I'm in bed, that's my usual routine.
1: <laughs>
0: so you moved on from Twitter. I guess it's I don't know if that's progress. or Well, I'm you know. planning a
1: wedding, but all of the wedding planning stuff oh, happens right, on Instagram, like wedding inspo. <laughs>
0: uh, so if you got to this point in the episode then I think it means we haven't sent you to sleep. So please <laughs> go on to the Apple store uh, and give us five stars because that uh, always helps to, to, to find new listeners. Um, or, or subscribe to the Deep Breath In channel wherever you get your podcasts. Um, I just want to say thank you to Lauren and Mike, our interviewees, uh, and to Duncan Jarvis, our producer. Yay. And say, yeah, <laughs> and say goodnight, I've <laughs> Good night, Tom. Sleep tight. <laughs> And good morning, Jenny. Have
1: Have a great night, you guys. It's all gone very Waltons.